0: In the Rome of the Caesars, you could have had yards of Chinese silk cut out for an outfit. And at about the same time in China, a princess was buried with what was described as a pasta maker from the West, along with detailed notes on pasta dishes. The Great Silk Road had begun, and it would, and this is no exaggeration, change the world. The trade route began in China, climbed into treacherous mountain ranges, and down into lands with names like Desert of Death. Well, an insane route? Maybe. But the payoffs could be astronomical. At the Silk Road's hub was a mythical-sounding city, Samarkand, the proverbial crossroads of foods, peoples, cultures, and goods that we can only imagine. So is anything left today... British travel writer Caroline Eden had to know, as did her colleague, food writer Eleanor Ford. Their discoveries are in the book Samarkand, recipes and stories from Central Asia and the Caucasus. Caroline, Eleanor, good to have you with us.
1: Hello. Thank you for Lovely having
0: Lovely to us. be with you. Caroline, where is Samarkand? Because this is a part of the world we're not familiar with.
1: Okay, so Samarkand is a city in Uzbekistan, it's not the capital city. The capital city is Tashkent, and it sits between Iran and China. It is north of Afghanistan, and it is south of Kazakhstan.
0: Okay, so we're talking mountains and desert, right? And That's right. And this was the crossroad of the Silk Roads.
1: So what took you there? Um, I first went to Samarkand in 2009, um, really inspired by the Mughal architecture of northern India. So the founder of the Mughal Empire was Babur and Babur was born in modern day Uzbekistan. So having fallen in love with this fantastic Mughal architecture, I thought I have to go to Uzbekistan and go back to the roots. Mm -hmm. And that was really what, what took me there. So what were your first impressions? My first impressions were just wow. I had been traveling in Tajikistan in quite rough mountain territory for a few weeks, and I crossed the border and drove into Samarkand, and all of a sudden I was surrounded by shining turquoise tiles sweeping high minarets and beautiful sandstone and it was everything i'd hoped for and more it was just like being transported back to the 14th century it was sort of arabian nights come true oh my you actually wrote that it shook you it really did you know when there's somewhere that you really want to go to and then you finally arrive there, and you think i really hope this doesn't disappoint me um, it was everything that I'd, I'd hoped it would be. It, was, it wasn't very touristy, so I kind of had the place to myself, which was very special and obviously quite hard to find in the world. Um, it was just very otherworldly. I had a particularly stirring experience at the Shah Zindar, which is an acropolis, and I arrived there very early one morning, and I was the only one there, and I could hear the imams chanting, and I just sat and listened, and I just thought, this place is incredible, why don't more people come here?
0: Eleanor, your first impressions...
1: Well,
2: for me, it's always food that draws me on my travels and it excites me the most. And I think for me, Samarkand is so incredible because it's uh, historically and still today such a cultural crossroads. And that means that the melting pot of people and cultures have each brought their own influence to the food there, um, which made it so fascinating to me as a food writer, looking at the different dishes and unpicking the history and the influences behind them. What kinds of dishes are we talking about? What is the food like? Well, I think returning to the map of the regions perhaps helpful um, in this because, you know, to the east there's China and so therefore you've got the flavours coming over like ginger and soy sauce, vinegar. Um, you have manti, little steamed dumplings, rather like Chinese dumplings, but instead they'll be filled with lamb uh, spiced with cumin or with pumpkin. Uh just turn south and you 've got Afghanistan, Pakistan, um, and the influence there is really from the spices uh, they 're not nearly so complex the flavors of spices in Central Asia, but the smell of kebabs grilling with cumin and coriander on hot outdoor grills is so redolent of that area uh. Uh, to the west you 've got iran you 've got Turkey um, and here you 've got the same flavors coming over the as the Persian food, saffron, pomegranates, fresh herbs, pistachios, almonds, dried fruits. And then to the north, you've got Russia. And here, particularly as Central Asia was under Soviet rule until 1991, you've got a particularly marked influence on the cuisine. And uh, you'll have a lot of things like dill permeating the dishes. Uh, And the flavours are such a unique fusion of flavours, because you might get, for instance, we have in the book an apricot soup, Apricots are really a key ingredient in the region and much prized. Uh, The flavours that spice it are both cumin and thyme, a very unusual mixture. Um, Then you might get a Korean beef noodle soup. Uh, half a million Koreans were deported to Central Asia in World War II. So they've brought a lot of their culinary influence. But uh, while it's essentially a a Korean broth, it's also got dill and sesame in it, bringing a kind of East meets West flavor. Is there a a sort of typical dish, or am I asking for the impossible? Well, the undisputed king of Uzbek cuisine's got to be plov. Um, This goes by other names, a pilaf, Palov, palau. Um, but it's essentially a one pan rice dish where rice is layered with vegetables and with meat. Uh, but it's it's so much more than that. It uh, can have jewelled fruits added to it, herbs, prunes, raisins, chestnuts. It's said there are as many different kind of plovs as there are people who cook it. And when it's cooked, it's cooked en masse. It's cooked in these vast pans called kazans. Um, legend has it that uh, Alexander the Great ordered his cooks to create a dish that could be used as a campaign meal for his soldiers. And so this vast, uh, these vast dishes are still used today to cook for people at weddings or parties and everyone joins together and shares this huge communal eating I imagine stoves collapsing (laughs) under the weight. (laughs) Well, it's cooked outdoors, um, and these these huge Kazan pans, at the bottom will go meat. It's usually either lamb or beef, Mm -hmm. which is slow-cooked until it's unctuous and melting at the bottom of the pan. Above this will go vegetables. Typically, in Uzbekistan, you'll have a mixture of yellow um, and orange carrots and onions and just a little bit of spice, uh, cumin, paprika, Tiny bit of red pepper. And then above that comes the rice, which might be studded with whole heads of garlic um, mm. or quinces, perhaps in the autumn. Uh, and then in the heat coming from below, the steam from the meat perfumes the rice above, uh, so that it's all scented with the flavours. And then when it's served, it's served in reverse. So you'll have the rice put at the bottom of the dish, then you'll have the vegetables and a little bit of the falling apart meat on Uh, top uh, (laughs) and then then this will be brought to the table with wonderful herb salads and bowls of cooling yogurt and perhaps a scattering of quail's eggs or pomegranate seeds or um depends on you know the chef's want (laughs) i think a lot of people are thinking about plane tickets right now (laughs) thank you both thank you so
0: much for having us
1: thank you for having us lynn
0: Caroline Eden and Eleanor Ford are the co-authors of Samarkand. They left us with a recipe perfect for our outdoor grilling season, beef shashlik with tahini and pistachio sauce. Read that, kebabs. Now you can find it at splendidtable.org.